Hello, greater educators. Welcome to the Director's Podium. I'm your host, Adam Christie. Our guest today is one of the United Kingdom's leading educationalists. He is in great demand as a teacher, composer, and writer. He has written over, get this, 600 books, and his inspirational masterclasses and workshops continue to influence thousands of young musicians and teachers all over the world in both the principles and practice of musical performance and education. You can see him on Facebook, Twitter, and his website, paulharristeaching.co.uk. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming this magnificent person, Paul Harris. Paul, thanks so much for coming today. Thank you, Adam. It's absolutely lovely to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. 10 o'clock where you're at, it's only three where I'm at, so we really appreciate you staying up late with us. No, it's okay. I might stay up late virtually every night. Um, <laughs> this is this is this this is early for me. It's it's absolutely fine. Oh, great! So you're a night owl. I pretty much am, actually. Yes, I'd say so. Awesome. Well, um, Paul, would you tell us what made you want to be a teacher in the first place? Well, it's a good question, and I, I think, like many teachers, it was my own teacher. Uh, one particular teacher, um, particularly, which was uh, my clarinet teacher at school, who turned out to be the same teacher I had when I went to the Royal Academy of Music. Um, John Davis, his name was, an absolutely superb teacher, uh, a man who who had enormous wisdom, uh, enormous generosity. Um, a wonderful sense of humor and drew you in absolutely to the subject that he was teaching. Mm. Um, and pretty much from the word go, I kind of felt, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to do this as well. Um, because I think we are very inspired by people that move us, people that mean a lot to us some, somehow or another. Um, and that's and we want to be the same. That's certainly how I felt. Um, and so from, from really quite early on uh, in my life, um, I wanted to be a teacher uh, and, and not a day has gone by when I regret that decision. I mean, I, I do many things as well. I do lots of playing and lots of writing, as you suggested, but teaching is absolutely at the core of what I do. That's awesome. Um, Paul, how would you say, and I don't know how much you know about the U.S. education system, but how would you say that the U.K.'s education system is different than the United States? Okay, well, I, I do know a fair bit, actually. I've been to the States a good number of times, actually. I can't, I've, I've lost count. The last time I was over with you was, uh, uh, was it beginning of last year, I think? Mm. Uh, I was speaking at a, a, an enormous music education conference um, down in Texas, uh, in San Antonio. Uh, it was, I don't know whether you know that conference. It was absolutely enormous. I think there were about 29,000 people there. Uh, and uh, I've, I've spoken at other conferences. I've been to the States, as I say, a few times. Uh, and, and I don't think our systems are that much different, actually. I think when it comes down to actually teaching um, uh, students to play instruments, for example, uh, there are many similarities. I think there are some differences. Uh, your band method, um, where a lot of uh, orchestral instruments are taught in larger groups, uh, we do the band method as well, actually. We, we have taken on the, the, uh, uh, the American band method in, in, in a number of schools and areas we use it to some extent. Uh, I think one of the major differences is probably the exam system. 
uh, we, we are very much entrenched in uh, what we call grade exams. Um, and there are three or four, maybe five exam boards. And many, many teachers teach two exam syllabus syllabuses. Uh, and, you know, there are certain good things about that, certain not so good things about that, which maybe we can talk about. And I, I know for a fact that, that it's very rarely used in the States. Uh, and I applaud you for this, actually, um, because I, I think uh, teaching without uh, exams as a constant part of the progress is, is good, is a good thing. Um, but I think a lot of what we do is actually really rather similar. Now... Uh, we got the chance to perform with the King Singers when I was in college. And right. one thing that surprised me about performing with them was that they said they really don't warm up as a group. Have you, is that a common thing there? No, I wouldn't say so. Not, not at all. Um, I, th I think uh, for performances, uh, we go to a lot of trouble to warm up, actually. Mm. Um, uh, as far as I know, um, most... Um, ensembles, choirs, definitely, uh, individuals. Uh, we have very uh, significant warm-up routines. Uh, certainly I teach very significant warm-up routine to my pupils. In my every single lesson I teach, I have quite a, a warm-up routine um, because I, personally, and I think many, many people would agree that it's essential for getting the body and the mind into a good state to have a good lesson, to have a good performance. Mm. So I, I would say that, that that was unusual. So they do warm up as a group then? I, I, I would have thought so. Um, I, I'm surprised to hear you, you say that. I, I think most, most groups, most ensembles, most individuals warm up, well, whether it's for performance or lessons. They're the king singers, so I'm assuming they can do whatever they want, I guess. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I think they are the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> Um, Paul, what would you say, in your opinion, motivates students? First of all, maybe I'd like to say it's very important that, uh, that a student understands what they're doing. If you know what you're doing, then you want to do it. Uh, you know, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm supposed to be doing for my practice. I know what I'm supposed to be doing next in this lesson. There is more chance that I'm going to do it as a result. Uh, and so in, in both a micro and a macro kind of way, that is going to motivate a student. If I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, I've, if I don't really understand it, then, then I don't feel motivated to do it. I feel quite uncomfortable about doing it. Um, and you know, whether that's what, whatever it is, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. So I think the first thing really is that our students must know what they are about to do. The next thing, they're going to do because if they do then they're more likely to do it and they're more likely to do it with a with an open heart and open mind and some enthusiasm um, that's the first thing um, I want my students to feel good about themselves um, when they do something I want them to feel I did that I did that well I, I know what I was supposed to be doing you know in a lesson context you know I understood what my teacher just asked me to do. I understand why they just asked me to do that. Um, I did it and it makes me feel good. You know, wh when we do something and it makes us feel good, the brain releases positive endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, these things. And these chemicals, they're feel good chemicals, like having a piece of chocolate. Um, you know, chocolate releases the same endorphins. We literally feel good. These chemicals make us feel good. 
Um, and that motivates us. You know, if, if we do something and we feel good, that is motivating. Uh, and, and maybe my third point here is that, that it's very important that I feel I'm making progress. You know, if I feel I'm making progress, that's going to motivate me to move on to the next thing. Um, and, and so this is very, very much up to the teacher to ensure that their pupil, their student, is always making progress in some form or another. Now, this, this may be, um, you know, bigger forms of progress, like, for example, an exam. I pass an exam. Um, but I, I think that's very, or let me say that's less important. I, I you know, I examine for uh, a, a quite a well-known exam board in the UK, uh, and I like the exam system. And, and, and I don't think I would say anything that the people that run it would argue with. But I don't think that is the most important representation of progress. Um, to me, progress is something that can happen continuously as we are learning, as we are teaching. And or that you can't quantify progress in the sense as, you know, how, much, how, how many progresses did you make in today's lesson? You can't say, oh, I made 25 progresses because that's not the way we think. But I think at the end of a lesson, we can be aware that we have made a lot of progress. Uh, and in fact, I think it's very much part of good teaching to give our pupils uh, activities to do in the lesson at which, after they've done it, we can say to our, our student, you've just got that, you've just understood that, you have made some progress. We don't absolutely have to say that every time, that would be you know, ridiculous, we, we, do, we just wouldn't be saying that all the time. But we may say it a few times, and as a result, our pupils begin to get into that mindset where they think, yes, I've made progress again. Everything I do in this lesson, I'm doing to the best of my ability, I understand it, I am making these little incremental bits. And in fact, maybe I can count them up. You know, at the end of this lesson, we did, you know, maybe it was 30 minutes. Um, every minute we did one activity and I got it. I got that activity. Therefore, I made 30 bits of progress. You know, I'm giving you a, a, a not a sensible example there. But, but, but you know, you can see what I'm, what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and, and of course, that is very motivating um, because if our pupil is aware that they are making progress, they are they are very motivated, so I'm sure I could give you some other ideas. But you know, for, for the moment, I think there are three pretty strong ways of of motivating our pupils, mo motivating our students. And would you say those are timeless, or would you say that those are pretty recent? Um, timeless in the sense of have they always existed? Yeah, have their motivations uh, changed over the years? Well, that's a very interesting and uh, quite a deep question, Adam, and uh, we, we could spend the whole of this session just talking about that, actually, because I think the answer to that, to some extent, yes, it is yes. Um, and my fundamental philosophy for teaching is to be as inclusive as possible in the sense that I want all my pupils to enjoy their learning and to make as much progress individually as they can. I think there was a time in teaching, and there still is, to be honest, um, and, and this is to some extent geographical. Um, certain countries, I think, have a more severe kind of approach to teaching. I won't say which. Um, and what do you mean by so, that? What do you mean by severe approach? Uh, a, a more severe approach uh, where teachers 
are more um, more rigid in their approach. Mm. They are more authoritarian okay. in their approach, and they have a kind of philosophy, which I have to say that I don't really agree with. Kind of philosophy that says, "This is how I teach." You know, I know it's a good way of teaching. My good students get it, and the others, my bad students, don't get it. Uh, and I think the time has come, and very much now. Um, you know, in our pandemic period, um, very much now, we have to put that aside. We have to put that behind us. We have to say, here are my pupils, and I want them all, all of them, to progress, to move forward, to be motivated, each in their different kind of ways. Uh, and I, I think in a sense, yes, maybe what I'm saying is, is a, a diet, is a recipe um, for motivation that is very much of our time. But having said that, it's always been there. Uh, and my teacher, John Davis, who I was taught since I was the age of nine, and other teachers who I experienced when I was a child, also I know had that particular philosophy, which I've learned from. This will be my ninth year teaching. And it seems that their motivations have changed just slightly, but I would say they are a little bit different just because I think kids are different now for some reason than they were eight or nine years ago. And I think that is partially due to their motivations slightly changing. A lot of it has to do with technology that factors into motivation somehow. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and in fact, we have to uh, acknowledge that we live in the what some people call the digital age. Um, and, and young people today are absolutely very different from, you know, the very recent past. I would say that young people today are different from young people five years ago, significantly different. Um, we, we have to take into account that, that we have this technology, this technological age in which we live, uh, that, that young people, actually all people, you know, like playing computer games. And there's a whole lot of stuff that I could tell you about that the computer game um uh life has has thrown into into our thinking uh, as well as all sorts of other you know we want things now we everything has to be so much more immediate mm. we make comparisons you know my friend's got a better mobile phone than me my friend's had an upgrade and i haven't had it yet um we make these comparisons all the time our expectations are different um so yes i i, I think we do live in a very different time now, and we have to adapt our teaching to the time in which we live. Do you think, let's let's just imagine for a second um, that we had the possibility, we were given the choice of you could choose in education to go fully without technology, back to paper and pencil, no cell phones, no computers, no anything. It's back to encyclopedias and books. Or you could kin continue in the path of technology. What would you choose? Uh, well, if I was really allowed to choose, I, I would choose a bit of both. Oh. Um, I would take the I would take the best of both worlds. Hmm. Uh, and I, I always want to try to take the best of the world in which I'm living in. Um, and so I take the best of both because I think uh, there are lots of wonderful things that teachers from the past, the recent past, the more distant past gave us to understand, to learn, to, to learn from. Uh, and there's a lot of wonderful things that we can take out of 
the the uh, development of technology today and and i hope that i and and you know other people that that may think similarly would would want to say well let's take the best out of both worlds uh, let's let's make our world today the best that we can taking some from from both of those that you've just described adam what would you say are three practical things that would make a teacher better Three, three practical things that would make a teacher better. Thank you. Let me have a go. Um, <laughs> well, I think um, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that we have to be very self-aware, um, and I think we have to try to to teach ourselves to become more self-aware. I, 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 I sadly, you know, I, I observe a lot of people who are not as self-aware as I would like them to be. What I mean by that, Adam, I, I think, is aware of the effect that they are having on the people that they are working with. Uh, and in, in other words, I suppose I'm talking about empathy. And, and I, I see a lot of people behave in ways where I'm thinking, is this person really aware of the effect of what they are doing or what they are saying? on the person to whom they are doing or saying that too. And I can only assume, I can only uh, conclude that they're probably not because what I think they're doing is not maybe the best in that particular situation. So I think that's the first thing. I, I would like us to, to look inwards uh, and be more self-aware. Uh, and, and, but what I mean specifically is about our behavior in a particular situation. And of course, what we're talking about this evening is, is, is teaching. That's my number one really, really important point. Uh, number two, and forgive me for this, but I would like to say, well, maybe I, I've developed a, a form of teaching, um, which I call simultaneous learning. There we go. You may know about. There it is. Yeah, so, but forgive me, forgive me, <laughs> but uh, is it, I've, I've, been, I've been developing this over many years now. I've, I've done some books on it. And it's, it's not a kind of teaching that, that is, is, is new. It's kind of taking the best, I think, from existing teaching. And there are certain principles there within it. I'm not going to spend too long talking about this, Adam, but, but just the three principles are, are that we teach through the ingredients of a piece. We make connections all the time and we are proactive. They are the three main principles. And I think that that uh, and, you know, many people have spoken to me about this system of teaching over the, over the years I've been talking about it. I've been talking about it all over the world. People feed back to me all the time. And and again, forgive me for saying, but but on the whole, their reaction is it does actually help them to teach more effectively. Um, and so I would may, maybe suggest that, that, that if people want to to think about it, to read up about it and, and just to explore what I mean by this kind of teaching, you may find that that does help to be better. I suppose in a nutshell, it takes us away from the kind of teaching where we say, you play to me, you sing to me, and I'll tell you where you went wrong, um, which ultimately is a rather uh, a, a, a negative kind of teaching. It's, it's, um, it's rather tedious, and I think it's quite exclusive um, because there are a certain number of pupils that will be okay with that, but lots won't. And, and ultimately, those people will give up because they think, you know, well, my lesson is really my teacher telling me where I'm going wrong all the time. So that, that's my second point. And my, my third point is, I think, and particularly today, more than ever before, we have to teach unconditionally. 
Um, and I'm, that, that is, is actually my next book. Uh, it's going to be called Teaching Unconditionally or Unconditional Teaching. I haven't decided yet. Um, and really, it's a kind of teaching. Uh, well, I'll tell you where this came, came from. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I had um, a serious illness. I had cancer. Mm which I am completely recovered from, I'm glad to say. Um, I had a cancer called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a, a blood cancer um, of, the, of the lymph system. And, and I got very friendly with a lot of my doctors and consultants. And, and we often spoke, and, and I, I remember very specifically asking my main consultant this, this question. I said, are all medics unconditional? And he thought for a moment and he said, well, Yes, you know, at least that is absolutely what we are supposed to be. And it made me think, are all teachers unconditional? And I'm afraid the answer that I, I came to and still have is no, by no means. We, we are conditional and we are conditional on lots and lots of things, uh, which is what my book is going to be about. You know, all the, this whole series of things. Uh, an example, practice. You know, some teachers say, well, you know, as long as you practice, I'll teach you. They, they, they don't necessarily say it as, as boldly as that, but that's what's in their mind. Oh, you haven't practiced. It's not worth me teaching you. And then there's a whole other raft of, of conditions that we create in our teaching. Um, and really, I want us to really think about those conditions. I'm not saying that they're not all, some of them are good. Some of them are important. Uh, you know, conditions in life are important um, in certain cases, but on the whole, when we're teaching, I, I think I would I want us to move more to that medic play way of thinking of being unconditional. So so there are my three points. You know, be more self-aware, be more empathetic, have a look at this simultaneous learning way of teaching, and be unconditional. Okay, so you talked about unconditional teaching. Let's look at this in the sense of say a math teacher. A math teacher, because we hopefully you have a lot of teachers that are not just music teachers listening. Um, how would a math teacher teach unconditionally? Um, do you mean in a, in a classroom of 30 students? Right. You know, and I'm assuming, you know, as I think of what my rules are, my rules that I have in my room are basically my conditions that if you follow these it's going to be so great. It's going to be such an amazing experience. And when that falls, um, when those rules are broken, the only re reason that they're rules is because that, those are the best conditions to 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 learn, I think. Um, so is that what you're talking about, about teaching unconditionally? Yes, to some degree. That I, I, anything where we impose conditions, uh, I want us to think carefully about those conditions. And you know that's why I said you know just a moment ago that some conditions, some conditions are necessary. You know, if we go to the zoo, uh, the, the the people will let us into the zoo on the condition that we don't jump in the cage with an animal, with a tiger, um, because the likelihood is we're going to be eaten by that tiger. So those kind of boundaries, those kind of conditions, are very useful. But at the same time, there, there are a whole raft of, of conditions that may be in our minds, um, more psychological kind of conditions, 
um, that, that I just want us to question all the time. Uh, you know, for, for our maths teacher, particularly our maths teacher, teaching in a classroom of 30, that, that the whole raft of conditions are going to be very different. I, I'm, I expect, I, I, you know, what I'm thinking about in my, in my own mind is teaching music to a smaller group of people, maybe one individual or a group of two or three, which of course is very different compared to being in a classroom. But I, I think what I'd, I would like to say is let's think deeply about what our conditions are, whether they are affecting the way that we teach and whether there may be potential for changing them or developing them or thinking about it in a different way. I suppose what I'm really getting at is, do we have any conditions there that block our pupils' progress? Uh, and observing teachers as I do quite a lot, I do see teachers setting up conditions that ultimately block their pupils' progress. And what, what would and, some of those be? Uh, well, for example, the one that I mentioned, uh, I'll only teach you if you've practiced, if you've done your homework. Mm -hmm. If you haven't, then you know, you're know you not worth teaching. Um, uh, I'll only teach you if you learn at a good speed, you know, this is the speed I'd like my pupils to learn. Uh, and, you know, you don't learn at that speed. Therefore, I feel rather frustrated um, it, that you're not living up to that particular condition of mine. Uh, or I have certain expectations um, and you're not fulfilling those expectations. Uh, that's a condition in my mind. Um, or all sorts of things, you know, that, that, that a, a pupil may behave in a particular kind of way that doesn't meet an expectation in our mind. And therefore, subconsciously, it becomes a condition. We may never have thought about it, but it may become a condition that then blocks that teaching as it moves forward. You wrote a book. You just talked about you having cancer and you being cancer free. And congratulations on that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, what did cancer teach you about yourself and what did it teach you about teaching? Um, well, it taught, what did it teach me about myself? It taught me, I think more than anything else, to take nothing for granted. I, take, I, take, I don't take anything for granted anymore. You know, we, we wake up in the morning and the sun is shining, I hope, or it, the, it's light, it's bright, and there's, there's a day for us. And I was given uh, between 60 and 70% chance of survival um, over that cancer. Uh, a lot of people die over with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that, that's quite a, a leveling thought to, to be faced with for you know, a good few months. My treatment lasted about six months. And, and I began not to take anything for granted. You know, wh wh when you have chemotherapy, it hits you like a bulldozer. Um, and you lose your strength, um, you lose uh, your capacity to think for part of that time. I mean, I had three weekly cycles and the first week or so, you know, I was in a bit of a bad place and I was looking out and I was watching people with energy moving around and doing all the things that I, I wanted to do, things I took for granted. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I stopped taking those things for granted. Um, all the things that we do take for granted, let's not take them for granted. Let's think, 
that's it's wonderful that you know i've just had that wonderful conversation with someone i've just given a lesson what an honor what a privilege it is to give someone a lesson whatever it happens to be i've just walked down the street i've just driven somewhere i've just eaten a meal you know these are all things and there are many many others that that so many of us take for granted i stopped taking those things for granted i i started to be much more aware um which makes me feel much better about everything that's what i learned I learned many other things. That's one thing I'd say I learned about myself. But uh, and and what about my teaching? Um, well, I, I I learned that we can learn every day. Every day is an opportunity for more learning, and and I think the 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 cancer period really brought that very strongly up in in my mind. Every day we must learn. Um, I, I learned that. Uh, the essence of our personality, and again, this is only my opinion, of course, and maybe psychiatrists, psychologists will be, would say different things, but I think maybe the essence of our personality is how we react. We are how we react. But when I think back to, going back to John Davis, my wonderful teacher at school and at the Royal Academy of Music, he had a wonderful way of reacting to situations, to uh, people, uh, and that's who he was. And, that, and when I remember, John died about five years ago. Mm. Uh, and when I think of him, what I think about is you know, not necessarily his voice or what he taught me. I think about how he reacted in situations, because that's what I learned so much about. And, and during the cancer, um, that thought, that whole kind of area of thought became so much stronger in my mind. So the way we react, I think, is so very important. Um, we, we want to also realize, and this is something else I learned from the cancer, when you become very seriously ill, you basically lose control. You're not in control of your life anymore. Uh, you know, we are all in control of our life to some degree. When you're seriously ill, you lose that control. You, you, you put your life in the hands of other people they are now in control of your life. You know, they are responsible for saving your life if it's going to work. Um, and you have to take hundreds of pills and you have to go and have your treatment uh, on a regular basis and all this stuff. Um, and I think we like being in control. But what I learned is that I could still remain in some control at the same time as having to go with the flow. You have to go with the flow when you're ill. You can't do anything other than go with the flow. But you can remain in a certain amount of control. And when we're teaching, as teachers, we like to remain in control. You know, I, all teachers like to be in control. But I think the great thing to learn as a teacher is to still be in control and yet go with the flow. Here is this particular student they are learning at this particular speed, may not be a speed that I like, but it's the speed, it may not be a speed that any of my other pupils or students learn at, but this is their speed. This is how they learn. This is how I feel this particular lesson is moving forward. It's not necessarily what I planned or how I've done it with other pupils, other students, but this is how this particular lesson seems to be moving forward. I am going with the flow. I'm still remaining in control, but I'm going with the flow. And I think if we can, as it were, get those two great forces to come together, go with the flow and yet stay in control, I think we have mastered the art of teaching. 
So would you tell us um, about the day you were diagnosed? How'd you find out? Um, I had, I, 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 I've never been ill in my life until that point. I've had cold and that kind of thing. I've never been ill at all. And I had some un, un, uncomfortable stomach pain. So I went to my local doctor. Luckily, and I owe my life to this man, I think, because he could have said, oh, come back in a month's time and see how you're feeling. Luckily, on that first day I went to him, he said, oh, let's let's go and do tests. So I had about a month of tests and then I got my diagnosis and, and it was um, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and it was stage three. And stage three is quite an advanced stage of that cancer. So had he said, come back in a month, you know, that might have been it for me. Um, but how did I feel when I was told that given that diagnosis? That's an interesting question, Adam. Um, I felt very philosophical about it. I thought, okay, um, you know, this is where I am. I've got, I've been diagnosed with cancer. I've got cancer. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to defeat it. I didn't think it was a battle, but I thought I'm going to defeat this. I'm going to remain positive. I'm a very positive person anyway, but I, I thought I'm going to remain positive through this and I'm going to defeat it. And I'm not, and this was an interesting point as well. And I felt this very, very early on. I'm not going to be the victim. I'm not going to play the victim. Um, you know, I, I, I'm it. Oh, no, this is the most terrible thing that's ever happened to me. I didn't want to ever go to that kind of place. I've got it. I can't not have it. I'm going to see this thing through in the most positive way possible. So you didn't think this was a death sentence for you at all? No, even though I was told right up front, you have a 60 to 70 percent chance of survival. I was I was going on the the highest point of survival there and i would no, i wasn't i wasn't going to entertain the idea that i wasn't going to come through it well i'm so glad you did um what would you say are your weaknesses as an educator and how did you compensate for those because i think every educator has their weaknesses and the question is is how do you work past those how do you find ways to compensate for that what were your weaknesses and how did you compensate um Okay, that's that's a very probing question, Adam. <laughs> Sorry, um, you want me to say mine first? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. Um, well, because of course, you know, the 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 flip side of that is because one always makes one weak one's weaknesses one's strengths. Mm -hmm. um, that's how how one deals with it. Um, and okay, um, to be in, I'm going to be honest with you. Great. Um, and uh, first of all, I think without a doubt that I. Certainly in, in my youth, in my childhood, I was a slow learner. Hmm. I was a slow learner. Um, and I, I've speeded up, I think, a little bit as time's gone by. Um, but I was definitely a slow learner. I, I never was top of the class. I was always near the bottom. Um, and I never did well at exams. But that taught me something very, very much uh, because that people believed in me. Um, and I was very grateful that to the, to the people that did believe in me, even though I was clearly a slow learner. Um, and, and that has taught me an, an awful lot about teaching. You know, what, what is so important is that we believe in our pupils somehow or another, and we teach them to believe in themselves. Um, so I think, I think that was, I don't know whether you'd call it a weakness. I wouldn't call it a weakness now. A slow learner is not a, a weakness. It's just how you are. But when I was a slow learner, it was considered to be a weakness. Mm. When I was at school, I was bottom of the class, and that wasn't supposed that wasn't so good. Um, a, a more recent weakness is that 
that uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic and I, I do tend to work all hours of the day and night. And I, I kind of recognize that maybe around about the cancer time. And I haven't slowed down, but I've tried to, to be a bit more sensible, let's say, uh, in the way that I work. Um, I don't know whether you'd say working too hard is a weakness, but maybe it is because maybe it didn't give me enough time to go outside and, and enjoy all the beautiful things in the world, um, which I do more so now, actually. Um, and uh, uh, maybe, I don't know. Um, it's a difficult question and, and I'd like to talk to you again, maybe in the future and having thought about that even more. Yeah, um, but um, absolutely. Um, as we wrap up our interview, Paul, what encouragement or inspiration do you have for our listening educators? Um, OK, well, I think I've said one or two of the points already, really. Uh, and one I've just really said, which is let's teach our pupils to believe in themselves. You know, the, 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 our best teachers have taught us to believe in ourselves. I think that's the greatest thing that we can do for our, our students, teach them to believe in themselves. Uh, and through doing that, um, or in doing that, we must always be kind. We must always be kind to our pupils. Um, uh, personally, I don't think there's any place for unkindness. And I see it in the world. We all see it in the world. I don't know what the advantage is of it. Be kind and teach our pupils, our students to believe in themselves. And remember this, this really hugely important thing. As teachers, we are doing the most important job in the world. There is no doubt in my mind about that because we are creating the future. We are creating the next generation of people who will be the future and and you know it, it seems to me adam that that on the whole we don't learn from history we don't learn from our mistakes i'm talking about a macro thing because we continually make the same mistakes again and again but let's try not to do that let's try to learn from the past uh, let's remember that what we're doing if we do it at our best is the most important most important job in the world. Awesome. And one more time, where can they connect with you at, Paul? Uh, oh, well, please uh, do. I, I love people doing so if they can. I have my website, um, which you've, you've said. Uh, if you come to my website, there is a little um, contact thing at the uh, one in one of the top corners. And you can literally just send me an email. Anyone can send me an email any time of the night or day and be guaranteed I will respond. I, I always love responding to, to, to people, teachers, anyone who has something to share, question to ask, uh, a thought to share, whatever. I will always respond. And please do, do, do contact me. Awesome. And again, that website is paulharristeaching.co.uk. You can see him on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we give a thank you and a pod nod, Paul, for your time and your message. You can watch bonus material from Paul's interview on YouTube or our website in a segment called The Curtain Call. It's just a looser conversation that by the end of it, you really feel like you know our guest really well. Um, and again, you can see that on YouTube or our website, www.thedirectorspodium.com. Com. My name is Adam Christie. You've been here with Mr. Paul Harris, and we'll catch you on our next episode on 
the director's podium. 